Growing up, I never wanted to be a pastor. I never thought I'd be in ministry. I never thought I'd even go to church. I became a Christian in college, and pretty shortly thereafter, I got really frustrated just thinking about all of the different things that got in people's way when it came to coming to church. I would take my friends, and they would come back, and they wouldn't understand what was going on. We started a Bible study on campus just because uh, we wanted to make sure that people got real, authentic community. Moving to Harlem, I was determined that any church plant that was going to happen here, it had to make sense for people here. So I felt very strongly that God was calling us to do a new thing, something that, uh, something that made sense for the people that we were gathering, and it wasn't based off of what had been done 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, five minutes ago. Looking to plant something here and helping amazing things happen in your community. They want to see growth in your community. That's something you gotta want to be a part of if you really love your community. I love the beginning of the story right now. I never really had a desire to be a part of a church plan. My real desire was to see the kingdom of God actualized in Harlem. And uh, when I met Jordan, um, it was something instantaneous. We had lunch, and I left there saying, yo, babe, I was talking to my wife. I said, yo, I think I'm going to be a part of this church plant. I've dreamed a ton. I want to see the love of God out in the community, aside from a Sunday service. I was a beyond broke newlywed, didn't even know I was living in Harlem. But we really, we fell in love with it. There's so much I want to see happen in Harlem. The church, it really can foster the combination of the old and the new. It's diversity working together. And I feel like that's what a, a church could do, more of that. After the first small group, me and Caleb were just like, yeah, this is, this is totally why we've been here. Like we've been here. They've experienced it, and all of that is coming into play. Like, all of that stuff I thought, well, this is just going to make me a stronger person, and this is going to make for some good stories, is so much more than that now. I'm amazed at the people that make up Renaissance, people that moved here a few years ago from the Midwest or somewhere else in the country, the family that's been here 50 years, the teenagers trying to figure out how to navigate the neighborhood, uh, all of these people in one room trying to figure out how to love Jesus and love this neighborhood. I want to see our, our church be something that is so filled uh, with the knowledge of what God has done for us that it literally ignites us to go out and love people radically. I want to see a renaissance. We shot that video about three years ago. Uh, I still had a little bit of a hairline left, Sharif. It was holding on. It was holding on a little strong. It let go, but it was holding on at that point. Uh, and when I look back at that video, um, I, I get pretty emotional. And, and I think about all of the things that have happened in the last three years and, and all that God could do based on just a small vision that we had, a big vision that we had uh, for this neighborhood. And I started to think a lot could happen with a vision. In the book of Proverbs, the writer talks about vision a lot, and uh, he gives a scripture that some of you guys might have heard. He says, without a vision, people perish. Now, I don't think he means that without a vision, you're going to die. Like, you ain't going, you mean I'm going to die without a vision? I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. 
Uh, I, I do think, though, that he's saying without a vision, people settle for a lesser version of life than they're supposed to be living. Uh, they get distracted really, really, really easily. And, and things that aren't supposed to matter matter a whole lot more than they do. But if you can turn that around, uh, the same impact is also true. With a vision, people flourish. People thrive. They aren't easily distracted. They don't lose focus of the goal. And one of the things that we've done ever since the first time we ever met in my apartment is we sat around and we had a vision for what this community could be. And quite honestly, it's been something that has blown me away at every turn. Uh, we, we dreamed how God could use us individually and collectively. And we dreamed what God can do in this neighborhood. Now, our vision at Renaissance is to see Harlem transformed by the power of the gospel. And that's not going to happen with one good person or two good people or five good people. Uh, it's not going to happen with great sermons or fantastic music. It's going to take a community. Now, one of our values here at Renaissance is community. And over the last number of years, uh, I've had a sharpening of what that word actually means. Uh, it means a, a number of things. Um, but more importantly, it means, first and foremost, we have to be gathered around something uh, uniform. Now, in 1945, there was this big famous picture uh, in Life magazine of a group of people hugging and kissing each other. Uh, you probably have seen the iconic image of the soldier kissing the woman in the streets. And photographs from that time were all over. Men hugging random strangers in the street, people celebrating all up and down different streets all over the country. Now, if you're a historian, you know that in 1945, World War II had just ended, and people were celebrating the good news that war was over. Now, good news brings people together. 2,000 years ago, well before World War II or any America or any uh, modern government that we have, people have been gathered around the good news of Jesus Christ. Men and women have given their lives for the vision of seeing God's kingdom come to earth. Now, today, I don't necessarily want to just preach you guys a sermon of sorts. Uh, I don't really uh, have that as my agenda, but I do want you to hopefully get a vision for community, why we value it, and what it means so importantly, that it would infect you, that it would get deep down into your heart, into your life, and it would mean something to you in a real significant way, and quite honestly, that it would alter the way you and I are living now, here's the interesting thing. If you and I have placed our faith in Jesus, then he has predetermined for you to know other people and to be known. For you to love other people and for you to actually receive love um, in your days of need. Now, over the years, I've gotten a better understanding of community. It doesn't just mean people in a room or, or joining a small group together. Uh, I'd like to highlight four key words and concepts and spend a little bit of time in each concept. Four words of this. Phil connect, disciple, and mobilize. The first word is fill. Uh, back in the day when we first got together, uh, we had a dream that, uh, and we think it was God's dream, that we would see not just our church, but churches all over Harlem and churches all over the city full with people who were far from God, making their way back to God. I don't know if any one of you knows what it feels like uh, to be far away from God and to have someone make an invite to you to come to church. Uh, when I was in college, I was about 19 years old. I remember uh, really getting far away from everything that I knew what was going on. Uh, I went to college. I was wilding out. And uh, I remember, you know, 
growing up, I had to go to church every Sunday. It wasn't like you had a choice to go to church. It's like, you're going to wake up and you're going to go to church. That's what you're going to do. And when I got to college, it was the first time in my life I didn't have to go to church anymore. My mother would still call me on Sunday evening and say, hey, how was church? Uh, what did the pastor talk about? And I would like run and get a Bible and be like, uh, Jehoshaphat. He talked about Jehoshaphat. It was good. It was challenging. You know, it was the ending I didn't love, but it was good, you know. And I lied my way through a year and a half. Um, but in that, I felt myself slipping really far away from God. And one night, I said a really simple prayer. I said, God, if you're real, send me someone that's going to help me get close to you. I had no idea what my way back to God looked like. I was clueless. And a number of weeks later, I was sitting in a library at my school. And a woman from my Spanish class, we were talking about the class and the upcoming test. And she says, hey, what does that cross mean to you? I was wearing a cross back in the day when Mason and them had changed. You know, we had to shine. She asked me what my cross meant to me. And I said, to be honest, not, not a whole lot. She shared her devotion with me that day, and at the end of her devotion, I remember she just said, hey, it would be great if you would come to church with me one day. She made the invitation a couple of times, the days I was sober enough to actually go. I remember the first time I went, and I sat in the back of that church, and I, I wiped away tears. For the first time in a very long time, I felt something. I was making my way back to God. I think when we uncover the heart of God in Scripture, uh, we see a God that wants all of his children to come and make their way back home to the table. Uh, there's a parable in Luke 14. It's about a great banquet. It's about this kind-hearted man who wants to bless his friends by hosting the banquet of all banquets. Uh, he calls over to all of his servants, and he splits them in two groups. The first group, he says, listen, I want you to prepare the best food that's ever been made. We're not just going to get Popeye's this one. We're going to get like legit chicken, uh, rice and beans, uh, maduros. We're going to get like a full feast of the best foods that you can ever imagine. He takes the second half of the servants and he says, hey, I want you to go out and I want you to invite the world. This is about to be a lituation and we're about to get it cranking. Uh, the day of the banquet, uh, what happens to him is what happens to a lot of us. It's your birthday celebration, you made a reservation for a party of 39, and you get the text coming in, hey, I'm so sorry, I can't make it. Uh, and person after person, uh, as scripture tells us, comes and they say they can't make it. Now, the host could have just called it off, but his response uh, was, is a perfect picture of God's heart for us. In Luke 14, 23, uh, it says, then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. There's this banquet. There's this meal that is prepared, and God doesn't want one morsel of food to go to waste. God is this good host who has prepared for you and me the Lamb of God, Jesus the Christ, that has been prepared for us on the cross. God doesn't want his houses being empty. God wants everyone. He says, compel, go out to the boondocks, go out everywhere, go to Staten Island, go out as far as you can imagine and compel them to come. Here's the heart of God. And here's what uh, the, the, the rallying cry around community has to be, is that those who are far from God would make their way back to the table. There are a lot of people who are really far from God, but they're very close to you. Now, I've, I've been in my own life uh, almost dismissive 
of people that I walk past, uh, and it doesn't feel good uh, knowing how much I just ignore people sometimes. Uh, I daydream. Uh, I get so frustrated with people on the street who are walking too slowly. Uh, like, walk to the right if you're going to go slow, right? And oftentimes, I find myself getting so caught up in the meetings I have for the day or whatever else is on my agenda that I lose sight of people and people that need to find their way back to God. Listen, once upon a time, if you place your faith in Christ, you weren't close either. And there is someone right now that has said a prayer this morning. You might be in this room today. God, if you're real, help me. Send someone that's going to help me get closer to you. Or maybe you were invited by a friend that, you know, has been talking to you about church over and over again so you could hear this good news of the gospel of what Jesus has done for you. And you could have the courage to say, hey, maybe I can take that next step. Listen, I've given myself to the vision that not just Renaissance, I'm not talking about just this church, but that Harlem would be full of churches that are welcoming and embracing people who are far from God, making their way back to him. Just this morning at 10 o'clock, the Gathering Church, who you helped support uh, to start, they just launched with their very first service. And I wonder how, how much my life is really driven by this vision to see uh, our church is full of people making their way back to God. Now, I get a lot of questions and random comments sometimes about churches, and sometimes I hear the comment like, oh, these churches just want to get big, and some churches probably do just want that just for big sake. Um, but I've never once heard someone say the American Cancer Society is getting too big. I've never heard somebody say, yo, man, American Cancer Society, they want to do all this research, they want to cure all this cancer, what's wrong with them? I've never once heard someone complain about that, and they, and they never would. You'd be crazy to do that. Listen, the mission of the American Cancer Society to eradicate the cause of death for millions and millions of people is a great one. I think everybody should be donating or giving their life to, to, to ending that. All of us have been affected by cancer in one way or another, whether a relative or a loved one. When it comes to the church, it's like, oh, hey, the church is getting too big, or they, they want too much of me. Listen, the, the, the immensity of the, the mission determines and declares that, listen, this thing, it cannot be just a, a couple of people spattered around and spread it around, but rather that God wants his houses full of people who are making their way back to him. I can't, answer, I can't tell you how profound it was to have someone who cared that my life wouldn't just go on as, as usual, and this woman was not uh, an expert in evangelism. She didn't have a, memoriz a memorized track that she was going to share with me. She simply wanted to make sure that I was going to make my way to God's table. And as a community of people, my heart, my absolute heartbeat is that you and I would desire that above our comfort and above all else that we would see people making their way back to God. Now, the second word is connect. So not just fill, but connect. And you all know what it feels like to be at a party and you got a nice outfit on, you got a shape up and uh, you walk in, you got your red cup and your friends, they told you they would be there at 5, you got there at 5.30, and they're still not there. And you're there by yourself, and you're feeling like a loser. So you take out your phone, I'm not speaking from personal experience, but you take out your phone, and uh, you start checking Twitter, or you start checking something to make you look like you're doing something valuable. Like, you don't want to just be the lonely person smiling at random people. It's a really bad feeling to just be somewhere, even if it's an amazing celebration, it could be the cookout of the year if you're not connected with anyone. Every Sunday, 
uh, people come to Renaissance and uh, they, they look around and they're, they're praying that they can connect with someone. Listen, a connection, the right connection can literally change your life. I made a connection like that 17 years ago when I first uh, gave my life to Jesus and was uh, trying to, to follow Jesus. All of my friends, my New York friends and my basketball teammates, we were not going in that direction. And I knew for certain that I needed someone that was actually going to just walk with me and I can just hang out with someone I can connect with. Uh, one of my friends from New York, um, I went to Morgan State, shout out to the Bears. Uh, one of my friends uh, said, yo, my roommate, this dude is like always talking about Jesus. He's always playing gospel music. He wears suits all the time. And he called him Kirk Franklin. And I was like, hey, listen, do you think Kirk Franklin would let me come to church with him? That's the most operative question for the day. And he was like, of course, he's always inviting everybody to come to church all the time. Now, I didn't make too much of this in my mind. I didn't think anything was going to happen as a result of this other than I would be able to go to church with someone and someone would call me in the morning to my dorm room to wake me up to make sure that I was going to go to church. Now, in that 17 years, that random connection has been the most formative spiritual experience of my life. That brother who randomly took me to church one day bought me my first Bible. And I learned how to read scripture sitting next to this dude. Years later, as I was dating my late wife, he was a guy who was holding me accountable so um, that I would uh, stay on the straight and narrow road. Uh, when my late wife got sick, he was the one I was calling to unload on and to uh, just let my heart cry out. And when I was struggling with faith and wondering, did I still even believe in God? He was a dude I was holding, that was holding me down. When my late wife passed away, uh, he was sleeping on my couch for weeks at a time just to make sure that I wasn't going crazy. When I met my present wife, Jessica, he was uh, the one to hold me accountable because she couldn't keep her hands off of me. <laughs> She's in the cafeteria now, so she didn't hear that. <laughs> and he has been there for the moments when, we, when I was sharing with him the vision for this church and when I was discouraged in ministry and when I was excited about things. And listen... The most formative things that have happened in my spiritual walk have come based on connections that I've had to people, and you never know whose hand you're going to shake. You never know what you can do in someone's life. You never know what type of blessing that someone could be to you or that you could be to them, and I fear that we have diminished community to a brunch crew that we can hang out with. Now, here's what happens when someone new comes to Renaissance, one of two things. The first is that something that, I, that actually makes my heart glad. Uh, I'm so excited every time I hear this. Uh, someone that's new, and I see someone who's been around Renaissance for a minute, and they're talking to them in the hallway, and then they bring them up to me or Aswan or Lester, and they say, yo, Jordan, this is my new friend, so-and-so. And then I watch those people get plugged in slowly but surely. Somebody stepped out of their lane to make a connection. I have friends who are pastors all over the country, and every now and then when they're in New York for the weekend, they'll pop in. And what I hear all the time is like, yo, this was so amazing. People just randomly came up to me in the hallway, started introducing themselves to me. This is a really uh, French, uh, friendly church. This is amazing that you have this culture. Uh, but it's not always like that. Uh, there are people who walk in and have prayed that morning, God, would you send me someone that's going to help me get closer to you? Would, would I be able to make a deep connection today? I don't want to just be standing around by myself, looking at my phone, trying to pretend like I'm doing something more important. God, I really do want to connect with someone. And you know what usually happens? 
Uh, let me talk to the Renaissance members for a second. New people get here at 11.25. They haven't mapped out their route yet. They don't know how the trains work. Sometimes it's even earlier than that. And they're here early, they're getting a bagel, and they're looking around nervously, and they're hoping that they can connect with someone. But for those of us who have been here for a little while, it used to be 11.30, and before you know it, it's 17 minutes later. That's when you normally arrive, and I, I get it. I know what it's like to ride the struggle bus of having kids and trying to get everybody ready in the morning. Uh, but too often, we found our click, and we're good. No reason for me to get to church early, on time or early. Uh, but there's so many people who you can connect with. Now, Scripture tells us that it's not just um, uh, hearing a sermon or it's even uh, listening to a, a worship song that, that helps shape us, but that God uses people. God uses connections that you have for you to actually grow. Uh, there's a Scripture in Romans 8 where it says it like this. Um, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, those are a lot of bigger theological terms, but I want you to focus your attention to this uh, phrase, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that everyone who has placed their faith in Christ, that God has uh, directs the affairs of your life in such a way that you would be formed to be more and more like Jesus. And that does not happen solely by reading a good book. That does not happen solely by hearing an amazing sermon. That does not happen solely by you having an amazing prayer time, but it happens based on your connections to real people that God uses to operate in your life. Now, for whatever reason, God could zap you with Holy Ghost maturity in a heartbeat, but God doesn't do that. God doesn't just uh, save and grow and mature people on an island by themselves. Uh, later in Romans 10, 14 through 15, Paul says it like this, How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear, listen to this piece, how can you hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. God uses people for the work that he has intended for your life. And you might be the person that God is wanting to use in someone else's life. You, without, you don't need a PhD in theology. You don't need to be able to sing a song or write a sermon. But God uses people to be the good news in people's lives, to spread the good news, to actually be that connection that lead us toward himself. Now, connections are not just uh, for connection's sake, uh, but rather, uh, Scripture tells us in Galatians 6, 2, uh, to carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. The word burden is literally like a heavy stone or a heavy weight. And here's what it is. Here's what it's saying. Some people come in to this community, not just to church services. They come into your lives and they're carrying heavy weights. They're, they're, they're processing and experiencing life in a way that has never, uh, that they're not even able to deal with. It's so far to their comfort zone. Someone in their family may have just passed away. They may be experiencing trauma. They may just be lost in life. And listen, they were not meant to carry that stone, that heavy weight, by themselves. And I fear that we've become too individualized in, in our approach, that we're not carrying each other's burdens, and we're not even looking for the opportunity to carry each other's burdens. 
Now, here's something that's real, particularly for a church this size. Uh, people get kind of overwhelmed by the amount of people, and they say, man, it's impossible for me to know everyone. That is not the goal. I don't even know everyone. The goal is not for you to know everyone. The goal is for everyone to know someone. Big difference. The goal is not for you to know every single person that walks in this room, but the goal is for everyone to know someone meaningfully and to have a meaningful connection. Now, here, here's why this is so important, important, and that brings us to our third word, our third concept, which is disciple. Now, disciple is uh, a Christian word that uh, may bring up some reaction in you when you hear it, because uh, it might sound a little too heavy or too deep, but basically, a Christian means a disciple, and disciple means a Christian, and uh, we see Jesus talking about this word called discipleship in Matthew 28, 19. If you've uh, been to church, you probably have heard this scripture before. It says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even until the very end of the age. Now, here's the thing about discipleship. It's a big word that I just want to define for you pretty narrowly. And you being a disciple means you taking the next step of obedience. It means you letting go of whatever it is that you're, you have going on in your life and taking that next step to say yes, to follow Jesus. Uh, I read a tweet the other day that really uh, resonated with me, uh, and it talks about the differences that our culture has versus what Jesus actually says. Here's what the world will tell you. The world will tell you, follow your heart. Whatever you want to do, do it. Follow your heart. Jesus says, don't follow your heart, follow me. The world tells us, love yourself. Jesus says, no, don't love yourself. Deny yourself because you're already loved. The world says, be true to you, bro. Whatever is true to you, sis, whatever is true to you, do it. Jesus says, don't do that. Be true to me. I can't think of a more difficult thing uh, than discipleship. And here's the rub. You and I cannot accomplish that by ourselves. It's a literal impossibility. We need other people who are traveling in the same direction that are pushing us to that point and helping us to get there. Here's what I fear. I fear that when we think of community, uh, it's, way too the, it's way too individualized, and it doesn't focus on uh, how we are being grown to say yes to Jesus. And uh, the version of Jesus that I want is a version of Jesus that just says, yo, just be a little bit nicer, or just, you know, trust me a little bit more. Uh, but when we see Jesus encounter people in Scripture, it's oftentimes with this radical call to leave everything they have and to pursue him above all else. Uh, you guys may have heard of this parable of Jesus and um, the rich young ruler. Jesus comes to this rich young ruler and he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the Ten Commandments, essentially. And the guy in his arrogance says, I've been doing all of that since I was a little kid. What's next? Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have and then come follow me. And it says a man walked away deeply saddened. Now, I don't think that scripture is as much about money as it is about Jesus confronting us with his radical grace and calls us to say yes to him. That oftentimes us means us leaving things that were pretty valuable to us. Uh, there's this book uh, by James McBride. It's his memoir, The Color of Water. And in the book, James McBride talks about his mother and his father and uh, their relationship. Now, he was a biracial child. His dad was black and his mother was Jewish. And in 1942, the popular decision was not to marry the black guy. I don't know if you guys knew that. And uh, 
his mother, uh, when she announced to his family, to her family, that she was marrying his father, her family held what's called a shiva for her. Now, if you don't know Jewish culture, this is what a shiva is. You do shiva when someone dies. You do shiva. You sit around and people wear black and they come to your house and they mourn and they bring food and they sit around as if the person was dead. And this is what uh, James was, McBride was saying in his book, that when my mother made the decision to go with my father, she was saying goodbye to her entire family. She was dead to them. Now, Jesus probably won't give all of us this radical of a decision every single day in your life. But to follow Jesus, to be a disciple means in saying yes to him that our old life is sitting around having a shiva. And it's impossible to do that, to make these hard decisions, to follow Jesus to this next step, whatever that next step is, by yourself because you don't have enough strength in your own. Now, here's the good news. Jesus loves you as is. He sees you as is. He accepts you as is, but he loves you too much to leave you as is. And every single time Jesus is calling us to move to another step of what we call discipleship, to say yes to him, it, is, it does come at a cost. And frankly, my heart for this church is that we would be people learning what it means to say yes to wherever Jesus calls, pushing each other, encouraging each other. There's a scripture in Hebrews where it says, encourage each other as long as it is day, because we cannot do this uh, alone. And every decision you and I make has a consequence, and we need people pushing us in that direction. Now, the last word is mobilize. Now, I love Sunday worship services. I love good singing. I love good preaching. I love all these different things. But I fear that when people think about community and church, they think about a Sunday worship service and then going home. Now, oftentimes, I'll talk to someone about church and they'll say, man, I love Renaissance uh, because the pastor is so swaggy and uh, nobody ever says that. I wish you would, but nobody says that. Oh, what they normally talk about is the worship services. I love this community. I love the singing. I love this. I love that. And very rarely do I hear um, how people want to contribute. Too often, we're consumed with going to church and not being in the church. Too often, we're far too con- concerned with, uh, man, I didn't really like that worship set. I didn't really like that song. I didn't really like this. And it's, it's a whole list of our shopping preferences on what we wanted, and very little concern for us uh, to actually be the church. Now, one of the things that I'm learning as we go forward, as, a, as I go forward as a pastor, and as we go forward as a community, is that every single person in here has a spiritual gift. Every single person in here who has placed your faith in Jesus God has given you a divinely instilled and imparted gift that you would be able to serve other people, and God doesn't want you sitting down, just simply sitting down in a chair. But here's what I understand to be the notion of of a calling. Now, a lot of times people think that they're not called to do anything because they can't ever see themselves with a microphone teaching or singing. And man, those are two out of 10,000 things that you can be doing. But God has given you a gift. It says this in 1 Corinthians 12 and 4. It says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Here's what will break my heart for you. If we were a community that weren't mobilized around what God is calling us to do. 
Now, if you don't know what a calling is, uh, let me simplify it for you. I think a calling is a combination of a burden and an opportunity. If you want to know what God is calling you to, combine these two things. What is your burden? What keeps you up at night? What angers you? What frustrates you? What injustice? What is it that is burning inside of you that makes you uh, upset? In the scripture in Exodus, when you see the calling of one of the first men in the Bible, when God called Moses by the burning bush, I mean, he speaks to him from a burning bush. Before God ever spoke to Moses from a burning bush, God first lit Moses on fire. God showed Moses all of the injustices that his people were facing in Israel, and Moses was boiling mad, so mad that he ended up killing someone. And then finally, God appears to Moses from this burning bush and says, Moses, who's going to go, bro? And amidst all of his excuses, Moses eventually goes. Where is it that God is lighting you on fire so that we can mobilize together around the common good that God has called you to? And the second question for that is, what are the opportunities that you have in your life, in your 24-7 day-to-day interactions? Now, one of the pieces of the, good commi- the Great Commission is basically this notion of this. As you are going along your way, make disciples. It's this notion that as God is leading you in your day-to-day interactions on your regular path right now, that there are things, divine appointments that God has set up for you to have. And God wants us to not just be a group of people that are just around each other, but to be mobilized for this common good of seeing people come to know him. Now, one of the things in my heart that often uh, goes on is that I lose focus uh, pretty quickly of what God calls me to do. And I read this Facebook uh, post that um, I do a lot of social media. Don't judge me. But I, I read this question on Facebook that really challenged me. And I want to I wanna present the same question to you. If God could answer every one of your prayers right now, every one of your prayers, think about the last five, ten things you prayed about. Would it change the world or would it just change you? Would it make your life a whole lot easier and a whole lot better, or would it actually have a deep impact on this world? To be perfectly honest, most times I would answer that prayer with, it would primarily change me and my living situation. I would have outdoor space. Far too often, we have lost sight of what God uh, is calling us to do as a community. So I think this is why the author Paul says it like this, in Hebrews, or whoever the author of Hebrews says like this in Hebrews 12 and 2, it tells us to not take our eyes off of Jesus, but rather it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus and seeing what Jesus did for us on the cross, where Jesus laid down all of his power, all of his prestige. Uh, One quote, when Jesus is on the way to the cross, he's talking to Pilate, and Pontius Pilate, the man who was about to have him executed, he says, Jesus, you better answer me, bro, because I'm about to have you executed. Jesus looks at him and says, listen, there's not one thing that you can do to me that I haven't given you power to do. Jesus wasn't killed. He He gave himself to be our sacrifice. And so often, I think it's that we have taken our eyes off of Jesus and put them on ourselves. Hey, what would it look like if we were a community of people that longed for not just this church, but every church in the city to be filled with people far from God, making their way back to him? And we would spend our time and our energy connecting with people 
so that you and I can go on this discipleship path of following him and taking that next step? And what if we were mobilized, really mobilized, each person determined that we would see God move in an amazing way? I think we would see a renaissance. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, you know our hearts. You know the things that distract us. You know the things that get in our way. Uh, God, I'm so uh, personally burdened sometimes by how selfish I can be, um, let alone all of the ways I miss you and what you're doing. God, help me, help us to be mobilized, uh, to really pursue you together as a community. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.